let's just take mine. We have, you know, 650, let's say, locations across the country. I don't need to win dramatically in any of those locations. I just need to have a win in the significant majority of them. And if the doctor or my counterpart is winning a little bit more, that's okay because he or she may encourage someone else to join the organization or may encourage, you know, a little more growth out of their location. And maybe they win even a little more, but then I'm still winning more. But we win at scale. So we win not so much by winning the individual. And it's not a battle with that partner in the location. It's a, it's, it's cooperative. We just need to be jointly successful. And candidly, if they're a little bit more successful than me, all the better because I have more stability there and we can focus on the next one. Welcome to the Impact Multiplier CEO podcast. I'm Richard Metcalf, founder of X Quadrant, and my mission is to help the world's top CEOs and entrepreneurs shift from incremental to exponential progress and create a huge positive impact on our world. Now, that requires you to reinvent yourself and transform your business. So, if you're ready to play a bigger game than ever before, I invite you to join us and become an Impact Multiplier CEO. Steve, it's a pleasure to have you here. I know that you are somebody who has made making a huge impact. You've built a billion-dollar business uh, you've been helping establish a $75 billion sector in the US. Uh, and you've been doing this for some, some time now. So I want to jump straight into fear. I want to jump into fear. Because one of the things you said to me was that when you started, one of the secrets of getting this whole thing going was having a no fear mindset. So can tell me, let's just go back in time to that moment. What was going on and why did you, why did you need a no-fear mindset? Uh, and how, what did that give you? Yeah, so we, we just passed 25 years from founding the company a couple of days ago. But if you go all the way back to the late 90s when we started the company, we started it, we rolled up a few little businesses, put it together, and found out that we were in a a sector that was operationally dramatically more complex than we had really planned for. So, and that's good and bad, right? If we had known how complicated it was and tried to plan for all the variables that go with the complexity, we would have never got started. So sometimes not knowing is good. You jump in and you go. Sounds a lot like parenthood, if you ask me, or, or indeed any other big decision, right? If you, if you knew it all, you might not do it, but you'd miss out. It is, yes. It is a lot like parenthood in that way. And, and you know, and, and you do forget some of the pain. That's why you keep doing it and try it again, right? So we jumped in and, you know, I was a young guy and had been a finance guy in my past, but hadn't been, but I had an operational mindset. My mindset as a finance person was, if it involves money, I should be involved. If it doesn't, keep me out of it. Turns out in business, that's most things. And that's a little bit of the advice I pass on to people in my leadership team too. If you're in human capital and it involves people, be involved. And that's most everything, right? So you know, that was kind of my mindset. And so when the opportunity came to run the business, you know, I was 32 years old and you know had not been an operator. And the company had something like 15 times debt to EBITDA, which is not a good ratio, which should be more like four or five. So, you know, I was in a position where I was like, wow, this is risky. And so how do I attack something that risky without having real experience doing it? And I had been around the business and been around people businesses, you know, my whole brief career at that point. And so 
had a sense for what I wanted to do on the relationship side, but had to be willing to trust myself and jump in. And so you know, I set a mental model, which is going to be a very big part of my career and my thinking in terms of how I run businesses. But I set a mental model that in this case, I was an ER doc, an emergency room doc, and the best emergency room doc in the world can do the best work in the world. And sometimes the patient just comes in too late or too catastrophically harmed. And that's the way it goes. You can't say, I shouldn't try because maybe the patient's you know, too risky for me. And so with that mindset, I was really pretty free just to say, let me go do it. Let me follow my heart. Let me go establish relationships. In this case, with each of our key lead doctors, we call them, and sit down with them and say, what does a win-win relationship look like? to you. And will you trust me to go fight for that win on your behalf? But look, let me just pause you. Let me just pause you for a second before we get into the win-win. I just want to pick up on this point of the mental model because what you really created there was a metaphor, a metaphor of the ER doctor, you know, emergency doctor having to intervene because, well, you know, it might not work, but what's to lose, right? We need to listen to an impact to be made here. And it's really important, right? The language we use, the mental models we create. If you want to change our mindset, we need to just create a new metaphor, right? Because you could have come with another metaphor where it was like, oh, I'm a tightrope walker. You know, I'm going to, you know, if I, if I slip up, I'm going to fall off and, or, or whatever it is, right? And that would not be a helpful and empowering metaphor. So it's a really fascinating choice. Absolutely, Richard. I think the thing, you know, being a student of mental models for now, you know, at least 25 years, one thing I always remind people is, if you don't set your mental model, that doesn't mean you don't have a mental model. It's set. It's running in the background, right? And your mental model might be, in your example of a tightrope walker, more fear-based or at its best, very precision-based even, right? But that fear or precision, whichever one you want to ascribe to the tightrope walker, isn't the same as sitting down with someone and saying, you tell me what the outcome needs to look like to feel like a win to you, right? Because for a tightrope walker, it's not negotiable. The tightrope is, you know, a fraction of an inch wide or whatever it is, and the fall is catastrophic. And you can't say, well, yeah, I'll maybe go right, maybe go left, whatever you think, right? You're going in a straight line. Whereas the, the mental model I was trying to set was, it's okay, I'm free. What does a win look like for you? Can I find a win in that, a balanced win for both of us? So I talk to doctors at the time and say, look, I'll take your paycheck as seriously as I take my P&L. But I have a quid pro quo to ask. I'm asking you to take my P&L as seriously as you take your paycheck. Because if I have a great P&L and you have a great paycheck, we're both winning. This relationship's going to last a long, long time. We're both going to be happy. If you're making a fortune and I'm making nothing, how long do you think it's really going to last? And conversely, if I'm making a ton of money and you're not achieving your goals, you're going to go find something else to do. So, Steve... Let me ask you, everyone talks about this, or everybody. A lot of people talk about, yeah, you need to have win-win and everything, right? A lot of people talk the talk, but I hear it's really deep to you. You've mentioned this several times. I've seen it in you know, things you've, you've already written. What advice would you give? You know, how, how can somebody kind of go from like going, yeah, yeah, we always we need win-win? Because a lot, I think a lot of leaders say win-win, but secretly they're saying, yeah, but I'd like to win a lot, like quite a lot more than you at the end of the day. <laughs> and... How would you hack people's thinking? So a few different ways. Um, and, and everyone's business is a little different. But let's just take mine. We have, you know, 650, let's say, locations across the country. I don't need to win dramatically in any of those locations. I just need to have a win 
in the significant majority of them. And if the doctor or my counterpart is winning a little bit more, that's okay because he or she may encourage someone else to join the organization or may encourage, you know, a little more growth out of their location. And maybe they win even a little more, but then I'm still winning more. But we win at scale. So we win not so much by winning the individual. And it's not a battle with that partner in the location. It's a, it's, it's cooperative. We just need to be jointly successful. And candidly, if they're a little bit more successful than me, all the better because I have more stability there and we can focus on the next one. So in our case, we don't need to do that. So that's one. So it's, it's partially just setting your mindset as to, are you okay if you say, oh, I could have got a dollar five, but I got a dollar, right? Because the alternative is like losing money. So yeah, I'm fine. So that's one. Are you okay, truly okay with your partner actually winning, not them thinking they're winning and you going, they're not really winning, I'm winning, right? So are you truly okay with that? That's number one. And that has to be in your heart and in your mindset, in this case, your mental model. Then number two is can you communicate that to your organization in a way that works? So in our case, we think about our constituents. So you've got patients, they have to get a great deal, great care, great quality, great value. Our providers, that's the win-win we were talking about. Our employees, our suppliers, our investors, company itself, right? And then our broader communities. So that's kind of our everyone, right? That's our everyone, that's everyone that impacts us. And you know we're in the dental business. So if you win in dental, you might say, I don't know, smile. So our mission statement and our vision statement, and I know you have a consulting background, so you tell me you can't have the same mission and vision statement. Well, we do. Um, it's smiles for everyone. We have a three-word mission statement. And so that's it. You know, and that's our vision. Our vision is smiles for everyone. Our mission is to move closer to delivering smiles for everyone at every step of the way. So yeah, but it's smiles for everyone. And so literally on my wrist, going back for 20 years, I wear those three words. What I do, and this goes to your question, is I literally have a ritual. I take this off every night. I put it in the drawer with my keys in my wallet. In the morning, I don't just grab it and put it on. I grab it and I roll it on like this. And if I roll it on, I say to myself, I don't have an out loud thing. I am committed to moving closer to delivering smiles for everyone today. So whoever I interact with, how, how is this a win-win I'm establishing? And so I'm constantly fighting for that. And that vernacular is in so many conversations that I have. And it's usually at the start of every meeting. What is the goal here? How are we trying to achieve it? What does that look like for you? What does that look like for me? So this is a beautiful, practical piece of personal transformation that you're showing us here, right? That bracelet for many years that you put on, that ritual, I'm sure it's the stage now if I cut you through, you know, like a stick of rock. I don't know whether you have rock in the States. It's this British kind of candy, right? Oh, Sweet. It's like, okay, a, yes. it's a long, you know, the seaside and you cut through and there's a word, right? And in the word, the word, if you normally it's the name of the town, uh, but probably for you, if you cut it through, it would say smiles for everyone, right? That's going to be so impregnated yes. into who you are. Uh, as indeed, I think for me, you know, I mean, this idea of, you know, multiplying impact. Am I multiplying impact today? You know, in what way am I going to multiply the impact of my clients, right? How do I help How do I help top leaders create breakthroughs that serve the world? 
Um, so I love this. So to go back into this whole point of what came first, right? So were you coming at this from the point of view of a, you know, with a commercial mindset and then you realized, oh yeah, this is doing some good as I go? Or were you coming at it from uh, what you might say an impact or mission mindset uh, and created the business to sustain that? So I've been in and around healthcare my whole career. So to me, the two are inseparable. You shouldn't be in healthcare if you're not aware that that's a service that's vital to people. And if you're in for-profit healthcare, it can't be lost on you that you're utilizing other people's money to achieve the end game. And so, you know, we have investors, those investors have money, other people's money, other people's money, you know, could be, you know, former teachers or former, you know, uh, they're on pensions, right? And this is where they get their money. And so, you know, the idea of saying, well, I'm in healthcare, therefore it doesn't matter if I lose money, that doesn't work, right? Because it's not your money to lose. Now, if it is, if you're the sole owner and you want to say, hey, I put, you know, X millions of dollars into this business. And at the end, I just want to make it last as long as I can until it's to zero. That's up to you. But when you have other people's money involved or bank money involved, which, you know, that's that overwhelming majority of businesses, then you have an obligation also to achieve an outcome for them. And because you made a promise, right? You signed a loan agreement, you signed an equity agreement. That was, you know, you didn't guarantee them what the return would be, but you certainly guaranteed you'd be trying to generate it for them. And so that's where I fight for this. I don't want to say radical transparency. I think that's sort of a buzz and thing. Just clear and unequivocal transparency, which is a little redundant. But you know, to say, look, here's the here's the score. Here's what's going on. Here's the expenses of running this business that you've been entrusted to run, also. And let's figure out what a win-win looks like. And and there is an outcome where it's there. And you know, let's row the boat in the same direction, if you will. But but really clear communication around it, and that's what I've done with my organization. We just came off a, a virtual summit meeting with our entire company, where you know they were available to view content. And each morning, I'd do a huddle, and I talked for about twenty minutes to the team on this huddle. And one of the things that was kind of fun for me is you know I've had the same CFO um, you know since I moved into the CEO seat. Uh, and he actually worked with me previously back when I was at Ernst & Young. And so I've known him for 30 years. And he called me after the third huddle. And he says, I don't think people have any idea how transparent what you're delivering in the morning is. Like, they're just used to it in our company. So they just don't realize, like, the level of detail that I'm sharing. I mean, they may as well be sitting in the board meeting because they're getting literally everything. And what do you find the benefit of that is? Well, what, what, what do be, how do people respond to that? You know, why do you do that? Well, they respond incredibly well. And it actually goes back, Richard, to I told you the origin story about being the ER doc and we were up against the 17 time, 15 times debt and things like that. And one of the things I noticed early on was that people were spending a lot of time around the company going, oh my gosh, I heard we're in trouble and financials are difficult. And I wonder if we're going to make payroll. I wonder if we're going to make payroll. And that's a legitimate fear. People work for that paycheck. They have bills. They have mortgages. They have car payments. They have you know kids to feed. If they're saying, my goodness, I might not get paid, that's a real issue. And so right then, I, I grabbed the entire company, which was smaller then, but still grabbed it. I said, listen, I understand that's a fear. And 
make no mistake, I'm not a wealthy guy myself. You know, I'm not in a position where I'm sitting there and I don't have to get paid. I need to get paid too, but arguably not as acutely as maybe some others. So let me tell you how this works for me uh, personally. We have all our cash laddered out into four tiers. Here's what the tiers look like. Here's what's in each of the tiers. The most high priority tier is payroll. It's first. So we would have to not be able to pay three other tiers before we get payroll. And the last person getting paid on payroll is me. And I am not even remotely concerned about this payroll, the next payroll, or the one after that. Now, if you want to make sure the one after that has a great chance of getting paid, the best thing you can do for you and your family is not think about us making payroll and think about what you're doing in your dental office or in your role to make the company more successful. In all honesty, that was the last peep I heard about payroll. And so I said, boy, it's so interesting. People have an incredible fear of the unknown and an amazing capacity to deal with the known. She said, look, what's the worst that happens three weeks from now, four weeks from now, you ask me the same question. I say, ooh, I'm a little more concerned. Well, you got paid the other three times and now you got to decide, am I going to roll the dice for you know another week or am I not? And people said, okay, I can see that. All right. And I said, by the way, we put our heads down and do what we're supposed to do. It's going to become a non-issue very quickly. And honestly, it did become a non-issue very quickly. I hope you're enjoying this conversation. This is just a quick interlude to introduce you to two transformative programs that we run. The first is Rivendell, my exclusive group of top CEOs who are committed to transforming themselves, their businesses, and the world. It's an incredible peer group and a deep coaching experience that will push you to new heights, no matter how successful you've already been. The second is Impact Accelerator, a coaching program for executives who are ready to make a big leap forward in their own leadership. It's regularly described as life-changing and no other program provides such personal strategic clarity a measurable shift in stakeholder perceptions and a world-class leadership development environment. Find out about both of these programs at xquadrant.com slash services. Now back to the conversation. Yeah, that's a beautiful example, a beautiful quote, I think, there of, yeah, people have a fear of the unknown and an amazing capacity to deal with the known. And I think that's a, what, a, what a great argument for, for transparency. Thank you. Hey, Steve, um, let's talk about purpose again, because you, I know you said to me that it only exists if it's number one on your agenda. Uh, and you said it, it, you quite literally would launch every meeting or strategy or tactical discussion with that. How do you do that? Like, how do you really keep it up there? How do you make sure that it happens when you're not in the room as well? Well, I've done it a number of ways over the years, but one, you know, one kind of funny one was, you know, if I'm in a meeting and someone's kicking off the meeting, it wasn't uncommon that as they started going, I'd start sort of agitating a little bit in my seat and they, you know, people in the room would go, oh boy, here we go. And then if the person kept talking about the, the meeting agenda, I'd start to, <clears throat> you know, get a scratchy throat and, and cough a little bit and maybe rattle, you know, drum my fingers on the table eventually. And then sooner or later, the person would be the last one in the room sometimes to get it. And they go, oh gosh, okay, I'm sorry. We exist in order to deliver smiles for everyone. This meeting is intended to move us in that direction because we're talking about a new supply contract. And that new supply contract relates to Smiles for Everyone in the following way. 
or we're talking about a new compensation program, or we're talking about a new, you know, technology program. And then people say, oh, so that's how it links. And so there'd be this very obvious, but there, they'd have to make the statement, we link to Smiles for Everyone in this way. And that's why we're gathered today. And so, you know, I'd force that oftentimes, and that was a great check-in. And it was always funny because people would say, oh, I didn't really like to say that. That's how it feels. And then they'd say it, make the linkage, and everyone in the room, including the outside participants, would say, wow, that feels really good that we just did that. And it was one of those things where it's like, every time you go to do it, it's kind of like exercise. Every time you go to do it, you're like, oh, I don't have to do this. And every time you finish, you go, I'm so glad I did. You know, and that's... Yeah, fascinating. And this is a great, a great example. Uh, one of the people, a very early episode on the podcast, actually, is uh, somebody I know, uh, Ben Page, who's now the CEO of uh, Ipsos Mori globally, a massive research organization. I remember him telling me in one of our other conversations, it wasn't on the podcast, I don't think, but uh, it might, or it might have been, I can't remember. But so the difference between like mediocre leaders and great leaders is like they all say the same stuff about leadership, right? You can't tell the difference by what they say but you can tell it by whether they actually do what they say. And, and so, yeah, so for example, you know, this, what you just said is a great way of, of saying, this is how we embody culture, right? Through language. And we do put it on the, in every meeting. And I'm going to like literally champion that. And people are going to damn well, you know, they're going to do it because I'm there. And if they don't do it, they're going to realize that it's not right. One of my first place I worked, um, the founder, amazing, again, amazing, amazing founder, just, I was just fresh out of university. I remember he would walk around and if anybody was not, I mean, it's a minor thing, well, not about purpose, but it was around the, um, actually about the customer relationship management system. The thing that often, you know, people have real difficulty getting their people to use because it's just easier not to do it. Um, this is a consulting business and for him, it was just like absolutely essential. We always know what's happening with all of our clients, right? We have a holistic view. And if he's, um, and, uh, and also any document that we created had to be in the document management system. And if, if he ever saw anybody just like whip up something off their hard drive, you know, or refer to a conversation that wasn't there, you were in serious trouble. I mean, like, you know, he, he, would, he would fire you or anything, but, you know, he would like, there would be a real conversation about that. And so because he took it seriously, and lived it himself. He didn't think he was above the use of these kind of systems. It became, it was, that was what everybody would do, you know? And it was really I had this, I've had this conversation actually twice in the last two days inside our company. I said, you know, have you, you've never heard a leader most likely with lousy espoused values. No leader ever says, Okay, well, we, what we exist to do is take advantage of our customers and wring every last penny up. Or we just use and abuse our employees until they leave and then we just hire new ones. Like, no one ever says that. They all say the same flowery, great stuff in slightly different words. Their values and action are totally different. And when your values and action are totally different than your espoused values, you become this parody of yourself and people roll their eyes when you say things that are purposeful. And that's why it's about character and not about leadership education. I mean, obviously, you, there's a place for that. But often we know the stuff. It's actually doing the courage. Yes. I, I think things like this are useful, not so much to help you develop a spouse values. I think we all can come to those. It's 
It's how do you demonstrate consistently that those are in action if you really believe them? Because one thing that does happen in the CEO seat, and it's funny, I one other slight you know, story that I remember, if you bear with me one second, early in my career, you know, I came out of the gate like a lot of CEOs. I was pretty good at the technical field I was in. And so it was amazing. I came out, I'm like, God, I'm pretty good at business. Like things come to me and I can make a decision. I get to the right answer. I'm pretty you know, sharp and quick with this stuff. This is cool. And then I get promoted and I get another promotion again. And one day I woke up and I was, when I was you know, a pretty young CFO of a, of a high growth business. And I'm like, wow, what happened to me? I feel like I used to be so quick and decisive. Now, everything that comes to me, I have to move it to a different pile on my desk, you know, and wait to decide what to do with it because it's just so agonizing. I can't figure out up from down, right from wrong. Everything feels like eh, hard decision now. I used to be so much better. And then finally the light went on. It's like, ah, all the easy decisions are getting made by, you know, kid me. And all the hard ones are getting kicked upstairs to now promoted me. And so the stuff I'm trying to decide between is like the 5149 and the 5248 stuff where nobody wanted to deal with it. So they kicked it to me. Of course, it's agonizing, you know. And so it's like that's, you know, I think what what happened, at least to me in terms of that, you know, that that journey. I, I think similarly, when you get to, to things like this and where they're useful, it's not so much you know, what's in your heart? Do you have the right espouse, espouse values? I think you either you do or you don't. If you don't, get out of leadership. That's horrible. I do think what happens, though, is in the CEO job, you're getting dealt all the problems constantly. And so it's easy to drift away from the vision and the purpose and get sucked into the problem of the day. Because, you know, if you're like me and you wake up at whatever time, you know, six in the morning, by 6.01, if you've looked at your phone, well, there's a few problems waiting for you, right? And so it's easy to launch into those. And then the end of the day comes and you haven't done anything related to the purpose of the company. And then a day becomes a week, becomes a month, becomes a year, and suddenly the company's lost its split. And so where I think these things are helpful is how do you force yourself to check in constantly? And how do you communicate it through an organization to enroll others in the fact that you know, the vision is the most important thing. And think about that meeting I was describing. If we're attacking a problem, you can say, okay, we're attacking a problem. Somebody screwed up. We're in trouble. Or you can say, hey, we're trying to move closer to our vision of smiles for everyone. We have something that's standing in our way. So we're going to tackle this problem so we can take a step closer to our vision. Well, you just reframe the whole meeting to a purpose-driven meeting. Yeah. Love it. Thank you. So, yeah, great examples. I love that. Uh, um, yeah, I love that point. That it's easy to drift from our purpose if we just get sucked into the problem of the day. Brilliant. Um, let's quickly talk about uh, one of my favorite questions, people on this show is what's it going to take for you to multiply your impact as the business continues to grow, right? It's obviously already significant. It, it's big, you know, but what's the next level for you as leader? Like, where's the stretch in you? Uh, you know, your next, your next growth? Well, I think one that, you know, it's kind of like what I was talking about, you know, we, we get promoted into roles usually because of our technical competence. And then suddenly we're in a role where we don't get to use our technical competence very often. And so now you become someone who's primarily responsible for organizational design and organizational development. 
And so the bigger you get, the more that design of your organization and the development of your people matters. And all you're really doing, I've used the example, and it's a U.S. space one, I'm sure it applies across the, uh, the pond as well. You know, you go from kind of being this field general, right? You're in the trenches and or even a, a soldier, you know, you're out there, you know, prosecuting the battle to suddenly you find yourself promoted to like Supreme Court justice. And a Supreme Court justice, yes, you make decisions that matter in the moment, but really what matters is Supreme Court justice isn't the decision you make, it's the precedent you're setting. And so that's really what the CEO job becomes is you're not in the room necessarily for the thousands of decisions that happen that really shape the future of your company. But you are there enough times for people to see how you make a decision and why you make a decision so that precedent can be followed downfield. So do we make the decision short term in a way that takes advantage of a counterparty or do we make the decision short term in a way that lifts the counterparty up with us and demands they lift us up also? And therefore, we do that a thousand more times as an organization and our culture becomes very strong. You know, so you can see if you do it in the former way, then everyone emulates that behavior. And next thing you know, your organization is very different than the one that uh, you would have if people were trying to do it in a win-win way. So what I'm hearing, if I hear you right, is that you, that next level for you is to kind of scale your own way of thinking, way of operating a little bit more. Is that right? So that people kind of understand the black box of why you do what you do. Is that what I'm hearing about this kind of impacted? Yeah, you become an example, right? You become an example for people is what it is. So you could have the type of leader where you say, I love our leader because, boy, if our leader got locked in a room with their leader, we'd win. Okay, well, does that ever really happen? You know, not very often. What really happens is your organization's making hundreds and thousands of decisions every day as individuals, and you want them making them with your culture. And so it's not so much our guys, the toughest or the smartest or whatever, it's what is our culture and you're the embodiment of your culture. That's what you are. And so you want an organization that, that behaves in a way that's congruent with the culture of the company. And that will never happen if you're not the one embodying that culture. And yeah, I'm sure you already embody that culture, right? Because you've, all the reasons you've taught. So I guess as I'm looking and thinking about what that edge is for you, as you kind of think, well, this is the way I can have a big, even bigger impact well, in and through and beyond my company. What, what comes to mind? I, mean, I, I embody it sometimes, not always, right? So, you know, I know like, for example, there was a period of time when, you know, someone come into my office with a problem and I'd just be like, oh, you know, you can feel it coming off me like, oh man you know, another problem. And then they'd be uncomfortable and anxious. And that was, I mean, I'm not a yeller or something like that, but you can just tell, I was like, Ugh, you know, do we really have to deal with this? And I actually, at one point decided to reset my mental model around that and say, this is what I do. Like my job is to be involved when there's a challenge. My job is to, you know, sort through it. So, Hey, come on in, sit down. Let's figure this out together. You know, this is what I do, right? Let's let's enjoy it. Let's have, you know, it's it's not the end of the world. Let's figure this out. So it was a, it was an approach to how we solve a problem. Now, what does that beget? 
Well, if you're uncomfortable to approach, that means people will wait till the last possible minute to approach you with something because who wants to go through that? And problems don't get better with age. You know, and being in the dental business, we know dental issues don't get better because you leave them unattended, right? So problems don't get better unattended. So if you have an organization where it's like, it's okay to approach me with an issue and we're going to actually have some fun with it and figure it out and not expect the answer to be abundantly obvious because that's not the ones that get to me, as I said earlier. Okay, so now it's problems are being approached earlier, broached earlier with me. Now follow that through the organization. What are they doing with their team? How are they behaving with their team? Right? Because if, if I have a direct report who doesn't want to approach me with a problem, the last thing they want to do is have a problem presented to them because that means they might have to approach me, which means they're going to give that off to their people who are going to give that off to their people. And next thing you know, everyone's ignoring problems, which don't get better. They only get worse. So that's an example that domino or that precedent theory playing. Yeah, that's a, that's a great example. Thank you for being open about that. It's a, great, it's a great one, right? Because it's really about the leader setting the cultural tone that replicates across. And it's, and it's actually about the way of being that we all need to work on. Like, we're not always the game, playing the game you want to play, right? We're not always on form. But those inconsistencies start to matter a lot more when you have the scale of influence because people see them. And you might only do it 1% of the time, well, 5% of the time, but that could be inflated in people's minds. It's like, oh, my, it's another time, you know, it's, you know, it's a bit of a risk, even though it, it's not perhaps that much. It, it, people notice it and they feel Yeah, and, and look, you know, look, someone comes in and maybe I don't react well. The best cultural example might be, you know, gosh, Richard, <laughs> I don't think I like the way I reacted to that. Let me talk about that, you know, and go and rewind the tape. Now, what are they going to do when they, you know, get approached and don't react properly? They're going to say, okay, you know what? Sorry, you know, I didn't react well. And so whatever you do is a massive, is multiplied, it's a massive force multiplier, you know, <laughs> impact multiplier through the organization, good or bad. Um, and I sometimes think, you know, when you step in it, that's the best opportunity to get a great impact multiplier. Because you say, wow, I don't love the way I handled that. Or you made a decision that didn't work out. And you say, hey, gang, just so you know, this thing that crashed and burned, <laughs> That was me. I decided to do that and it didn't work. So we're going to stop doing that. So now what happens? Now your organization has got behavior happening that's not productive and they're culturally, it's okay to say, oops, that's not working. Let's stop. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that's a great place for us to wrap it up, Steve. I think you've given us a lot today. Thank you for that. You know, we've just been talking uh, right now about that inner work, right, of a leader to, to be able to admit you know in humility admit mistakes to be able to maintain that constant um kind of positive attitude despite what's happening you know catch the times when we're going to uh, disrupt uh, the way people think and expect and create issues within a bigger company and before that we focused on so many things um you know mental models right choosing the right metaphor uh this win-win uh mindset the way that you've incarnated your mission in so many ways, from the bracelet you wear to how you start meetings, you know, the fact that transparency is a game changer because it removes the fear of the unknown. And, and oh, yeah, so many things here that we've talked about. So I want to thank you for kind of being generous with your insights and with your time. Um, if people want to find out more about you or more about 
the Smile Brands? Where should they do that? Uh, two places you can find us, uh, smilebrands.com. We'll have our, our website and then there's Smiles for Everyone Foundation dot, uh, dot com as well, which is a, a great place. That might be a dot org, I apologize. Um, you know, where you can uh, can check out what we're doing from a mission standpoint as well uh, with the foundation around the world. Perfect. Beautiful. We'll put those, we'll put those into the show notes so that they'll be there. Well, uh, Steve, it's been a real pleasure and I look forward to following your journey as uh, you continue to create smiles for everyone. Thank you, Richard. I really enjoyed it. It was fun chatting with you. Thank you. Well, that's a wrap. If you received value from this conversation, please do leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. We'd deeply appreciate it. And if you'd like to check out the show notes from this episode, head to xquadrant.com slash podcast, where you'll find all the details. Now, finally, when you're in top leadership, who supports and challenges you at a deep level to help you multiply your impact? Discover more about the different ways we can support you at xquadrant.com.